This is Prayer Room Companion, episode 38, recorded January 19, 2011. JP2, we love you. Welcome to Prayer Room Companion. I'm your host, and back with us once again, our regular co-host, Father Andrew Dickinson. How are you, Father? Cold and cold. Cold and cold. Thick cold and temperature cold. Exactly. I think the high this morning when I woke up said negative 7, or the temperature when I woke up for men's holy hour this morning was negative 17. Actual. Actual, yes. Wow. Not, not windshield. Actual. Wow. wow. Um, and, like, if you go to the uh, National Weather Service website, their last temperature for it is negative 2, which is at 10.15 yesterday. <laughs> what? They have to update things, apparently. Well, something's going Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you, you found that, actually, just, I, and I mentioned this, last week uh, we had a couple of guest co-hosts in um, who did uh, a more than one. Yes, but I mean, it takes multiple people to uh, to replace you. So, uh, and they, they did a good job. I think it, it, it worked. Um, uh, but you were away. I, I just wondered. It might be interesting to people, and, and maybe you don't want to get it too much into it. But um, the, the sort of training that you've been going through. What, what did you just finish? Uh, with a program called the Institute for Priestly Formation. I should say a group called the Institute, Institute for Priestly Formation, IPF, and their program on the identity of the diocesan priest and training in spiritual direction. And actually, this uh, ties in quite nicely with our topic today. It does. It does. It does. Uh, so, the peer program uh, is designed for priests out in the parish, so it goes from Sunday night until Friday noon. Uh, so you can get back for the weekend, you know, this uh, turns into the integral part of parish life. So, uh, from my understanding, oftentimes, among other things, but um, it gives you some some specific training uh, to be, for instance, the spiritual director to people, uh, which you correct. already have been doing just as a priest, but some more formation in that regard, correct? Exactly. Okay. Okay. Yep. Uh, so yeah, it does tie in. So that's that's where Father was, in case anybody was. Wondering, I didn't get any emails, Father, but you never know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but what Father and I thought we'd talk about, and Father threw this out actually um, as an idea, and I'm grateful to him for it. Uh, last week on the 14th, Friday the, Friday the 14th of January, uh, the Holy See announced um, that on May 1st, uh, Venerable Pope John Paul II will be beatified. Um, and, and certainly that does flow from the whole question of, or, he was a priest, to say the least, uh, bishop and pope. Uh, and he's going to be beatified just over six years after his death. Uh, Father, what, when you heard the news, what, uh, what, what was your initial reaction? Well, uh, there's great gratitude. It was announced on a Friday morning. We were having uh, Mass that morning, all the priests uh, at uh, the IPF, including... Uh, Bishop Aquila, the Bishop of Fargo, who has been a participant in this program, and uh, he was uh, presiding at Mass that morning and uh, announced it to us all at 7.30 in the morning with uh, great joy in his heart and his face, and uh, great joy and gratitude to God uh, for the gift of Pope John Paul II. He, yeah, and um, he was Pope, well, 1978 to 2005, so over over 25 years. Um, 
So for, for many of us, I mean, I, I was born before his election, but uh, it, growing up, he was really the only pope I ever knew uh, prior to his, to his passing. Uh, and, and we'll talk more about later, but certainly in many ways uh, a, a great influence on the, the Catholic men and women, well, uh, many men and women, Catholic and not, of our generation. Uh, but we can talk a little bit more about that later. So uh, he died six years ago, and that's pretty quick, isn't it, Father, from death to beatification? That's, uh, that's very sprightly. It's up-tempo. It's, 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 a, uh, it's almost a march, uh, if not even uh, uh, a little bit quicker. Yeah. Uh, one, one, one thing that was interesting, typically um, when somebody who, uh, who, who is of great faith and, and, and seems to be of, of evident holiness during their life, when they die, the, their, the cause for their perhaps ultimate canonization, in other words, the process by which there's this investigation of their life, uh, typically that has to wait five years. In other words, the, 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 their cause cannot begin, the process cannot begin till five years after they pass away. Uh, pope Benedict, uh, as, as, as a pope is able to do, Pope Benedict waived that five-year waiting period after John Paul II, his predecessor, had passed away. Uh, so, the, so the cause for his, um, well, Declaration as being venerable, which already happened, and his beatification, and then uh, God willing, his canonization uh, began sooner. But other than that, it is so. It is quick in one sense. At the same time, the process uh, goes through its normal and typical rigor. Uh, Father, what is that normal and typical rigor? See, now I was just going to ask you that, but you asked me, so uh, <laughs> I'll I'll give my understanding of the process, and then you can add anything uh, anything you want to. So there's there's a, a massive investigation of the of the life of the deceased, uh, and, and what's required what's required for canonization ultimately is that uh, the the person be uh, found to have lived a life of heroic virtue. In other words, uh, a, a love for Jesus Christ, a love for the church, um, uh, a love for God and neighbor, uh, which is to the point of heroism. In other words, a very clear uh, uh, depth of love for God and neighbor uh, in the life of the person uh, while they were alive. And then, uh, for canonization, there has to be a total of two miracles which are attributed to the veneration, uh, to, sorry, sorry, to the uh, intercession of the deceased. Now, this is actually an area for me when I was first learning more about the faith some years ago, uh, some confusion. I thought initially that there had to, they had to have performed two miracles, or God performed miracles through them while they were alive. Uh, but that's, that's not the case. It's, it's that somebody seeks the intercession. So, in other words, in this case, somebody... Uh, uh, would have asked John Paul II to heal them or to pray for a particular thing, and that a, a miracle happened as a result of that intercession. Uh, and and for, so that's for canonization too, ultimately. But the first of the miracles is is required for the the step, which is a beatification, which is what John Paul II is going to be receiving. I'm sort of going in reverse order, I should back up. The first thing, so they die. Um, there's an dying vote. Well, actually, let's not skip over death for a moment. All right, that's actually a very important part of the beatification canonization process. And I think it's one thing that I really, I mean, enjoy. <laughs> about uh, uh, the Catholic faith, you know, I think in, in, in some Christian denominations, there's a tendency to elevate 
and exalt certain figures before their life is fully written. And sometimes you end up, um, and, and we certainly do that at times as Catholics, but sometimes it ends up that um, this exalted figure, maybe it's a, you know, the televangelist scandals from the 1980s or things like that, huge scandal erupts because their life isn't fully written. But as Catholics, we wait until that life is fully written before we look at it and see, did this person's life reflect the glory of God? That's a very good point. Yeah, they they have to have died before their prosecuted. Pros- and again, there's this there's an investigation where uh, into their life and, and to look to make sure there's no skeletons in the closet. And that, you mentioned you know televangelist scandals. Certainly within the church that has happened where there have been, um, yeah, well at least men, perhaps women as well, but <coughs> men who seem to have lived lives of holiness. Uh, and then we found out perhaps before they died that that wasn't actually the case. So, yeah, you're right. That they have to have died. The process begins, and the first, the first stage is servant of God, recognized as servant of God. Um, then they're declared venerable. Uh, for neither of these, a miracle is necessary. A miracle is not necessary for either of those. But for the next step, which John Paul II is about to receive, beatification, uh, a miracle is necessary. And just to talk briefly about that, uh, the miracle, it has to be something where it's um, medically, medically, scientifically unexplainable. But beyond that, then, the church investigates. Uh, so there's, there, there are scientists, doctors, who investigate the alleged miracle to, to determine that it is, in fact, scientifically inexpla- unexplainable. But then the church goes even more, there's a more rigorous um, investigation to ensure that, is, in fact, it is uh, attributed to the, the deceased in question and so on. In other words, there are, the, the, reason, my, the, the thing I want to emphasize here is there are a lot of scientifically and medically unexplainable events that never receive the formal declaration as having been a miracle. Uh, the, the church is very rigorous and does not bestow uh, the blessing, so to speak, bestow the, the, the declaration of this is a miracle. Recognition, better word, uh, that this is in fact a miracle uh, willy-nilly. Uh, so there are many, I think particularly uh, from some of the shrines like Lourdes, um, events that are inexplicable from a scientific perspective, but the church has not gone so far as to declare them miraculous, even though scientifically we don't know how they're possible. So so with John Paul II, there was a, a woman, a French uh, religious, a nun, who suffered from Parkinson's, and she sought his intercession. How does that sound familiar? <laughs> Why does it sound familiar, Father? Well, wasn't that the same disease that his... Holiness, Pope John Paul II, suffered within his life? I think it was. Okay. And so she asked him, as is fitting for that very reason, to 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 pray for her healing, and she was healed. Uh, now, in, in this case, there was a time of investigation and to ensure, because there were some rumors that maybe the disease had returned, so there's a thorough investigation to ensure that it was a permanent healing of Parkinson's. Uh, the doctors and scientists involved determined that that was the case. The church uh, determined that, in fact, uh, it was uh, due to the intercession of Pope John Paul II, and therefore this miracle was the miracle necessary for his beatification, again, which will happen on, on May 1st. Uh, Father, May, fir- why, May 1st, what's the significance of, of that date? Actually, there is two significant, two significant, two significance 
Oops. two significant things about uh, that date. And they are? Our friends companion where we are masters of the English language. Uh, two significant things about that date. First of all, uh, every year May 1st is the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker, uh, where we honor uh, uh, the uh, foster father of Jesus, the protector of the Holy Family, specifically for um, his life as a laborer, as a craftsman. Uh, how he would have taught uh, the Son of God in his human life the dignity of human labor in that way, ennobling uh, the human task. And this piece uh, was given more attention by the Church in the 20th century with uh, the rise of communism, which had, uh, of course, maybe a well-intended, uh, to the benefit of the doubt, a well-intended uh, view of the worker, but in reality portrayed an inhuman vision of reality and cause great suffering and great danger to many. And, of course, Pope John Paul II came from that Eastern Bloc communist country of Poland in which uh, the people uh, suffered in in different ways. Not that people don't suffer under capitalism. They certainly suffer in various ways here. But uh, suffered under the communist rule. And uh, he sought very much to humanize, to to change uh, that communist government. And he affected great change and inspired, I should probably more than affected, he inspired uh, great change in his native Poland. Right. So once, I don't know if you have anything to add on and that. I, just on that point, um, the, the feast day was established, actually, it was uh, pretty clearly in response to communism. 1955 is when uh, Pius XII established it, it, as you said, in response to... Venerable Pius XII. Venerable Pius XII, in response to, exactly, to, to the communist movement. Go ahead, Father. And then uh, the second significance of that date is that it is this year liturgically the Feast of Divine Mercy, also known as the Octave Day of Easter, um, the eighth day of the great celebration of Easter Sunday. So the Sunday after Easter Sunday. Yes. Right. And that's why is that significant? <laughs> to use the word of the ah. I'm glad you asked that. Because <laughs> you wouldn't have said otherwise, would you? <laughs> You're the host, I'm the co host. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Feed me. It's radio at its, or podcast at its fine. Absolutely. So, uh, I'm glad you asked that, Dr. Burbank. <laughs> the Prime uh, uh, Racing Sunday is a uh, devotion uh, that came out of a. Uh, Polish uh, nun and now canonized saint, uh, Saint Faustina Kowalska, and uh, I probably butchered that name in Polish. And uh, but she uh, received locutions and visions of our Lord, encouraging uh, her to get the whole world to uh, rely upon, implore, and seek the divine mercy of Jesus. And Pope John Paul II. Are we allowed to say blessed Pope John Paul II yet? Venerable. Venerable Pope John Paul II was a great proponent of that devotion and feast day. In fact, he raised it to a universal feast in uh, the church's calendar as well, although still technically an option uh, for that uh, Sunday of Easter. But so he was a great proponent of it. Mm-hmm. And there's actually another interesting coincidence. So he wasn't just a big fan of it. Do you know what else happened with Pope John Paul II and Divine Mercy, Dr. Bergwald? Um, I think so, but I don't want to be wrong, so I'm going to defer to you. 
I'm glad you've learned that more than likely you are wrong. <laughs> uh, the other interesting significance is that uh, Pope John Paul II died on the vigil of Divine Mercy Sunday. And uh, just uh, a very beautiful thing to look at the providence of his life and how God provided for him, even in his uh, weakness of uh, nearing the end of his life. Uh, he had a great devotion throughout his life to the Blessed Mother. Maybe we can talk about his motto, Totus Tuus, at some point. Mm-hmm. But he also had a great devotion to uh, Divine Mercy Sunday. And uh, when he died, he died on a- in uh, April. I don't remember the actual day. I believe it was like April 4th or 5th. Something like that, yeah. And it was the first Saturday of the month, which is a day traditionally devoted to devotion to the Blessed Mother. And it was late in the evening, 9 or 10 o'clock. So it was the vigil, evening prayer one had been said, anticipatory masses had already been said for the Feast of Divine Mercy. So I think very providential on how our Lord provides uh, for his servants, even at their death. And so now, as you said, and that is the feast on which you will be beatified. Uh, Father, I, it, do you know where is he, where he's going to be beatified? I, I think Rome, I'm right? So, Rome. Yeah, which is unusual. Uh, and, and and Pope Benedict is going to preside, um, isn't he? I, I believe he's going to preside. It is unusual in the sense that it's in Rome, because typically. You're beatified in your home diocese. At least with Benedict. That's how Benedict's been doing it. John Paul II right. did beatifications well, in Rome. Go ahead. But previously as well, that was the tradition. That was the case. It was the feast of the local church. But I believe the statement here is then, to whom did Pope John Paul II belong? But the city and the people of Rome as uh, their pope for over uh, was it 27 years? I believe so, yes. Now, Not quite 27. 26 and a half, 26 and a half years, I believe. I think, though, that the Poles will protest significantly uh, that he, that Pope Zygmunt belonged to Rome because certainly, uh, obviously, he 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 grew up. He's he's a son of Poland. Um, so I think you're right. That's where it will will be. Um, but certainly, I think there will be uh, needless to say a large Polish contingent present at the beatification mass. Undoubtedly, he retained great love for them, but he also understood that he was no longer just a Pole when he was elected as a Pope, but he became uh, a servant of the whole world. And that's in living out uh, Jesus' words in John chapter 21. When you were young, you dressed yourself and went to where you wanted to go, but when you're older, others will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. Words that Jesus spoke to Peter, who was the first, became the first bishop of Rome, therefore the spiritual predecessor, so to speak, of every Pope, including John Paul II. Absolutely. So May first now, but May first won't be his his. And I was t- telling Father this before. At first, I was thinking, does that mean May first is going to be his uh, the day on which his feast day on the liturgical calendar in the local church, and then if he is in fact canonized? But it won't be. And my recollection, Father, is that the 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 date of his feast is is announced at the beatification mass. But we'll have to wait and see. I believe, that is, I believe that is correct. From my memory of Blessed Cardinal Newman this fall. Right. And so they usually is associated, typically to be, would be the day of his birth into eternal life, would be uh, the feast day. Uh, but uh, it's maybe some questions since it was uh, in that time of April, and a propensity right now in uh, the church maybe avoid certain feasts around the Lent and Easter time. That maybe it might be something like the day of his election to the papacy in October or some other date. Do you recall, um, and I, I'll look it up while I'm asking, do you recall when he um, 
was born, when his birthday is? No. Uh, May. May 18th is his birthday. May 18th. Um, I believe it was already a feast day on May 18th, so was there not? Is there? Uh, <laughs> May 18th, survey says, um, John the First, Pope John the First. His feast is celebrated on May. So not necessarily a dominant feast in the church. Right. So we'll have to wait and see what they do. As you said, typically it'd be when he died, but because that does fall um, during what could be the uh, Lent or Easter season, depending on what Easter is from year to year, uh, there has been speculation, as you said, that it might be moved. Yeah. So we'll just have to wait and find out. I know one of our priests, uh, Father Andrew, who is Polish, uh, is going to go to the Beatification Mass on May 1st. I just, oh, really? Yeah, I just saw him uh, yesterday here at the Dastanopsis, and so he's planning to go. Uh, as he went for the funeral Mass as well, um, so he's planning to go to the Beatification Mass. So, so again, that'll be very exciting for him and for... Uh, but, uh, people are talking that this will probably be one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, events to be held in Rome since John Paul I's funeral and then the... Uh, the um, election of, of Pope Benedict and, and his uh, first mass as Pope. Um, this will probably be uh, uh, the biggest <laughs> the biggest mass in Rome since then. So we'll have to see. So it was so. What's the big deal about John Paul II, Father? Why uh, why 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 is this? Because in the church world, this is big news uh, that that Pope that Pope John Paul II is going to be beatified uh, uh, so quickly. Uh, but the fact he's going to be beatified, a lot, I mean, a lot of people are very excited about this, and not just in Rome and not just in Poland. So what's the big deal? Well, I think the uh, big deal about John Paul II is that I think, in my opinion, he continued and deepened uh, many of the, um, uh, or I think developed the, uh, more fully the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, I think steer the church through a time that had uh, some uh, tumultuous uh, uh, difficulties and dangers, and I think helped to strengthen and build up the church in that way. Um, in that sense, he really was, I think, uh, a bridge to maybe some different uh, groups within the church to try and keep it together. He was a, a voice of unity, but he was also a voice that really did feed the flock, you know, going back to John 21 and the words of Jesus to Peter, you know, Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And, uh, so I think that's a uh, very beautiful um, thing to consider in that way. Yeah. Uh, he, so he has, he has multiple legacies, though, so it's hard, I mean, uh, uh, to, to really just catalog. Maybe it would be good for us just to catalog some of his legacies. Well, yeah, I, I think I just to begin with, I echoing a little bit about what you said. Well, okay, going back to the beginning, a lot of people note, you know, he, he grew up, uh, well, I guess, in the... the a, a young man, a child in the the teens and 1920s, uh, and into the 30s, and then uh, during World War II is when he entered the, uh, and right afterwards, if I believe, from memory serves correctly, is when he entered the seminary. So he grew up when when Poland was had been invaded by the Nazis. So he grew up, in, and then afterwards, the the the, the Soviets, the Russians. Um, the communists came, and they then t- reinvaded from the east 
right. to defeat the Nazis, and they stayed, or they at least they, they established a, a communist regime. So he grew up under Nazism and then communism, uh, so under totalitarian regimes, uh, was ordained as a priest, became a bishop, uh, and then went to um, the Second Vatican Council. You alluded to that. And, and the Second Vatican Council is, is huge in many ways for understanding the theology of Pope John Paul II and what he tried to do as Pope later in the uh, beginning of the late 70s and through his pontificate. Um, he really saw the Council as a gift from God to the Church in our time. Uh, he he worked on a number of the important documents uh, that were issued in, by the council. After the council, he returned as the Archbishop of, Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow, as he would become. Uh, he returned to Krakow and and sought really to to implement the council in depth uh, in his home diocese. Uh, he he wrote a, a, a book uh, called Sources of Renewal in English, uh, which was intended to be sort of a reader's guide for the people, and not just the priests and religious of, the, of his diocese, but all of the people of the diocese uh, to really read the council uh, documents and try to implement, in other words, live out the teachings of the church, uh, of the council, in a deep way. And and, and he continued that as, as Pope. Right, just recently, last several months, I was looking at some of his earliest writings, uh, his first encyclical, and, and, and pointing towards the Great Jubilee, the year 2000. He, he, he looked to the preparation for celebrating the 2,000 years, roughly since Jesus Christ was born, um, as a major event for his pontificate, as well as the, the, the ongoing fuller implementation of Vatican, the Second Vatican Council, the renewal of the church that the, the council intended, uh, really was, was the, sort of the, the, the two driving forces, the two emphases of his pontificate. Uh, so I think in many ways, just trying to, just trying to get people to look to the documents, to read the documents, uh, and to, live, to live out more fully the teachings of the uh, of the council was one of uh, the major things that he tried to do. Another, th- I mean, so you mentioned legacy. I think the catechism, uh, which he saw its publication, uh, the drafting publication of the catechism, all the visits. Go ahead, go ahead, Father. I think for me, one of the, the biggest legacies uh, or the biggest impacts that he had was his uh, reform of the way uh, priestly formation uh, was viewed and done. Uh, it's interesting, whenever there's a momentous council in the life of the church, one of the most important but sometimes slowest things to develop is the way that priestly formation is reformed and done. Uh, back uh, 500 years ago in the Council of Trent, uh, probably 400 years prior to the Second Vatican Council, um, they, they, the important the important change was involved in how uh, priestly formation was done, the reform of the local clergy, and again, uh, this has proven to be one of the uh, the biggest steps and uh, probably the most important document. My mind is one that maybe most of the people listening have never read, and it's called Pastoris Double Bobis, uh, meaning I will give you shepherds wherein he, uh, he reforms uh, priestly uh, seminary formation and even just recasting a uh, vision of priestly life and service according to the Second Vatican Council and yet in a continuity with the tradition of the Church. I think another thing that comes to my mind, and you're very familiar with just in your work uh, as a priest, World Youth Day is one of the major points of his pontificate, uh, the establishment of World Youth Day. Um, Father, you've been on World Youth Day at least a couple times, right? Three. Three. 
Although uh, one of them, I was 15 years old, and I must confess, was probably more interested in meeting girls than actually paying attention to the World Youth Day uh, going on. Uh, that changed later for later youth day, World Youth Days, I believe. So, uh, you were no, I still think people were going there hoping to meet a, meet, meet a uh, sweetie. <laughs> I was talking about you, though. Oh, <laughs> oh yes, yes, me it did. Yes, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, so there's, there's this generation of priests, as you're just referring to, young people, uh, the John Paul II generation that grew up again with him as as basically the only pope they ever knew. Um, I include myself among that number. I mean, very formative for me. Uh, my wife and I were blessed to have our marriage blessed by John Paul II uh, uh, during the first year of our uh, marriage, uh, which is a beautiful thing. Um, so I, I had the opportunity to meet him on a couple of occasions, just very briefly. I mean, never, no, no in-depth conversations, uh, but but certainly conversed with him, so to speak, through uh, the many documents and the books that he wrote. He was, I think, one of the first popes, uh, certainly in the modern era, the only pope I know of, who wrote uh, a book that was not a, a, an official document, uh, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, was a, a book that he wrote, uh, sort of a written interview, so to speak. In other words, uh, uh, an Italian journalist had uh, wanted to do an interview with him, had submitted some questions, and the Holy Father didn't have time to actually do a sit-down interview, but he wrote out his replies to the questions, and that became the book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope. Uh, so, in many, so many ways, I mean, all his travels to all the various countries around the world, he, he really tried tried to uh, be, you know, be Jesus Christ in the sense of, of, of show forth the love of Christ to the entire world. In persona Christi Capitus. In the person of Christ the head, exactly. Uh, so, so many ways where he has left this uh, an imprint, a legacy on the church. Uh, you know, many people, including our own bishop, refer to him as Pope John Paul the Great. Um, Pointing to, and there have only been, I think, uh, three other popes in history uh, who have gone by John Paul, or by, been called <laughs> the Great, not John Paul, uh, Gregory or Leo, Pope Leo from the fifth century, Pope Gregory from the sixth century, and then uh, not as well known, but there is a Pope Nicholas the Great. Uh, really? Yeah, there is. Uh, hmm. I, I, later, I think, in the, in the near the end of the first millennium. Uh, not certainly not as well known as as the as Gregory and Leo. Um, certainly, obviously, not as well known as Pope John Paul uh, II. Again, Pope John Paul the Great. Just because of the great imp the impact he had. You mentioned on priestly life. Uh, there's a whole generation now of bishops who, in many ways, including again our own, who were formed by his thoughts um, and his style, his approach uh, to being a shepherd, to being a bishop. Um, so, so certainly a long last, and, and apart from all the writing, the teachings that he gave, um, a long legacy that he will have, uh, an impact he'll have on the church. So, so we look forward to May 1st with, I think, great joy and excitement and anticipation. Very much so. It would be a great day for the church. It will be. So, I th uh, anything else, Father, that you want to add in, to, uh, Add on, say whatever, addend whatever uh, <laughs> to uh, our conversation here. Not that I'm aware of. Very good. So we will then leave it at that. Um, and as always, if you have any questions about anything we've said, uh, if you want to point out any other grammatical or pronunciation errors that we've made, we'll take them in humility. Uh, email me, cburgwald, C-B-U-R-G-W-A-L-D, at sfcatholic.org. And in the meantime, have a great week.
God bless.